Pray with me. Father in heaven, we've just sung that the very air that we breathe, the very place that we live is in Christ himself, the grace that comes through him. So I pray even now that you'd be gracious to us, kind to us, to open our minds, open our hearts, enable us now to hear, to receive, to embrace uh, this word that would sink deep within us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16. I'll only be able to take up verse 13, but we'll read all, all of those verses. First Peter 1, verse 13, hear the word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this week and next, I want to take up a question... Actually, this question will really move throughout the whole book of First Peter. But in these two uh, Sundays, these two sermons, this one and the next, uh, this question is most directly answered, I think. This week in a general way, next week very specific, which will take us then through the rest of First Peter. But, but, but the question is this. How is it that we, Christians, should respond to this great salvation? How is it that Christians should respond to this salvation? If you're not a Christian, the question would be for you then, how do... Uh, Christians respond to salvation, the salvation that comes through Christ. For those who are believers, the question is, how is it that we're to respond to this great salvation? Now the answer is, I'll give you the answer ahead of time so you can write this down so you'll pass the quiz. But the answer is that this great salvation is to consume us, that it's to captivate us, that it is to be the very thing that informs our whole life, that everything in our lives should be informed by this great salvation, be understood in relationship to this salvation, because Peter says that our hope is to be set fully, completely, upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by that I mean, by that I take Peter to mean, that, that, that this hope is to be all-consuming, this hope is to be the very deepest desire of our heart, that we would be recipients of God's grace. Without God's grace, there's no hope, and that's our heart's desire to receive it and to receive it to its full. Now, the reason I ask that question is because of the word therefore in verse 13. As Peter begins, we see that word therefore, and so essentially what he's saying is, I've told you all of this in verses 1 through 12. Now, I want to tell you something else. Because of this, then this. And what he's been talking about in verse verses 1 through 12, is this salvation. For instance, in verse 10, he writes, concerning this salvation, that's as he begins to sum up. So what he's been talking about is this, this salvation that he's given to us. Excuse me, I just, just don't want that. Um, I promise that's it. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but he wants us to, to see this great salvation. We talked last Sunday about the tenses of this salvation, past, present, and future that we have been saved. That is, that because of the work of Christ, and because of God's work in us to enable us to believe, that we've been declared justified, declared that uh, we're righteous in His sight because of Christ. 
Because we stand in His righteousness forgiven because of His death. Because of the blood of Christ, we're cleansed from our sin. So we have been saved, that, that great work of God in us to declare us justified in His sight. But we're also presently being saved. That is, that right now, through various trials, our faith is being testified, our, our faith is being tested and purified, being proven genuine. So our faith even now is being tested and we're receiving, he says, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls even now. So on the one hand, we're forgiven of our sin, past. In the present, the very power of that sin is being broken day by day, choice by choice, in the context of our lives. We call that being conformed to the image of Christ. We call that maturity. If you want to get technical, we call that sanctification, uh, which really, if we had an English word for it, would be holify. That is, to be made increasingly holy. And so that's the present tense of our salvation. And then there's a future tense as well. And that is that we know that the, the fullness of this salvation is coming. A day will come when everything in our sphere, because we'll be in glory, Everything in our sphere will reflect the Lord Jesus at his return. The new heavens, the new earth, our bodies, everyone around us, us even, no sin anywhere in sight, and none of the misery, none of the pain of sin either. And so that salvation too comes. So Peter talks about the salvation past, present, and future. And thus, I get that therefore, how are we then to respond to this salvation? The salvation that he's discussed. Because Peter's taking a turn here. He's been talking about our salvation in verses 1 through 12. And now he comes and says, therefore, and now he's going to tell us what to do. Now it's very important that we get this order correct. The order that Peter teaches us in. The order that he presents this stuff, this information in about our salvation. Verbs. (laughs) I always like to do that. You all know he's going to talk about grammar. Yes, I am. Uh, verbs have moods, like people. Right? Uh, for instance, when children come home at the end of the day, they're in a particular mood. And the mood is normally indicative. Because all they want to give their mom is facts. Mom, mom says, how was school today? They say, fine. All right? It was fine. Uh, uh, what did you do today? They make a list of the facts of the things they do. So they're in an, an indicative mood because the indicative mood gives us facts, tells us what is true. Mom, on the other hand, is normally in a little more demanding mood. She's in a rather imperative mood. She says things like, put away your backpack. Uh, you can have a snack, but you've got to put away the bread after you make the sandwich. She says, don't watch TV until your homework's done. And so she's in an imperative mood. Now, that is a command. And so the indicative is what Peter has been using in verses 1 through 12. He's telling us what is true about us. And then in response to what is true about us, he says, now do this. In theology, the indicative comes first, and then the imperative. Who we are, what is true about us, and then what we're to do. You'll notice in verses 1 through 12, Peter is very deliberate about the truth, about the facts, about who we are. So he starts out in verse 1 by saying, we're elect, we've been chosen by God. That's simply the truth about you. If you're a believer in Christ, this is a fact. You didn't do anything to get there. It was a work of God. It was out of His mercy, His free, loving grace 
that he chose you to be his before the foundations of the world. We're elect. Then in verse 3, he says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We didn't do anything for our new birth. That was a work of God. He caused us. It was a gift. He caused us. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. None of us ever conceive ourselves physically nor spiritually. It's a work of God. He caused us to be born again for a living hope. We have an inheritance that can't perish, and it's being kept in heaven for us. He says, that's true about you. If you're a believer in Christ, he's chosen you, he caused you to be born again, and he's, and he's given you an inheritance that's imperishable, that will be there. And even still, God is guarding you by his power through faith, so that you will receive that inheritance. It's, it, you will get there because of God's power, that's guarding you, and even through your faith. So he'll sustain your faith in the midst of this. These are all facts. And he's saying, even in the present time, uh, you'll experience trials, trials that bring grief, real grief, real difficulties. These people weren't taking a vacation uh, to whom Peter is writing. They were experiencing real life, real grief, real trials. And he says, even in the midst of that, uh, God is gracious because the fact is that these trials are coming so that your faith which is more precious than gold, though tested by fire, gold is, it will be proven genuine. And so all that's not faith will be burned away, so that your faith is pure, and so your inheritance is guaranteed, and God will guard you through that tested, purified faith. Fact. And then he goes on to say, at the end of that, that fact, you believe in him. Fact, you love him, though you've not seen him. In fact, concerning this salvation, the prophets served you when they spoke about it. fact, the angels think this is awfully cool, and they really are watching all the time to see how this plays out in your life. There's no show in heaven that's, that's, that's more fun to watch for the angels than us and what God is doing. He says, all that's fact. This is true. Now, go do this. If we get those moods reversed, it ruins everything. Because if we put the imperative before the indicative, if we say that you must do this in order to be, then we have legalism, not Christianity. Christianity is God does this, now you do. He changes your heart. He makes you do. He enables you to do. Thus these commands as the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter, three, chapter 5, are not burdensome. See, a burdensome command is a command that goes against the grain. It's a command that you say, I don't want to do. But Peter's saying no, and John is saying no. They're not burdensome, these commands, because God has already changed your heart. He's changed your heart, and he's simply now telling you what's consistent with who you are. And we should receive this and go, oh, yes, thank you so much for telling me how I'm to respond to this. That fits because everything he's going to tell us to do fits with who we now are. I remember when I was little in, in my day uh, in playing Little League Baseball, it was before the day that everybody got a trophy and everybody got picked and everybody, everybody got to play. Uh, in my town, Little League was ages 8 to 12. And uh, there was a rule that said you could only have six 12-year-olds on your team, but you could have as many as eight, nine, ten, and eleven-year-olds as you wanted to, given that you had about 14 kids or something like that on a team. No team had any eight or nine-year-olds on them. Every once in a while, you had a ten-year-old, but he was always that kid that was like six-two in the second grade. Uh, you know, and so 
But every eight and nine and ten-year-old kid every spring went out for Little League Baseball. And when you got there and the coach said, I want you to run laps, that was not a burden. When the coach said, I want you to field grounders, that was not a burden. When the coach said, I want you to bat, and he put the 12-year-old pitcher who could throw a million miles an hour right at your head, that was not a burden. Why? Because in every little boy's heart, all you wanted to be was a baseball player. It wasn't a burden. Nothing was a burden. Peter says, this won't be a burden because this is who you are. Listen. When Karen and I teach the Before You Say I Do class, we, we, we talk to these young couples about how they're to treat each other as husbands and wives. And we lay all this stuff on them. And at that moment in time, it's not a burden to them because they really want to do this. Now, in 10 years, they'll be back. But because but, eh, this is their hearts. I mean, the, the girls, the women have these great thoughts of marriage. And I shudder to think what's going through the guys' minds. But, but there they are. It's not a burden. Why? Because it's who they are. They want to be this. And again, Peter comes and says, this is who you are. This is what God has done. He's changed your heart. Now, I want you to do this. And by the time we get to verses 14, 15, and 16, he's going to lay out the big one. He's going to say, be holy. And that's going to carry us through the rest of 1 Peter. But before he gets to be holy, there's one intermediate step that we mustn't miss. Because he said, now here's what I'm going to do. Here's the command. I want you to set your hope fully on the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to set your hope on this completely, fully, 100%, hope in nothing else other than this grace that you're going to receive. Now this grace that you're going to receive isn't any difference in quality to what we have already experienced as believers, but it is a difference in quantity. That it's still the same grace. It's still the grace of God. And we've experienced that in measure. But he says the day is coming when Jesus returns when you're going to see it everywhere. You're going to see the fullness of this grace when everything in your sight will reflect Jesus. Everything will be pleasing to him. There won't be any injustice. There won't be any poverty. There won't be any tears. There won't be any, any, any rifts between people. There won't be any disease. There won't be any dying. There won't be any sin or any of its effects. Not in anyone you see and not even in yourself. Because at that moment in time, you will see the Lord and you will be as he is. You will be conformed to his image. You won't be deity. He's the only one who gets to be God-man throughout all eternity. But you will, in his humanity, share his perfection that every inclination of your heart will be to love God and to glorify Him and to please Him. And everything you do will be consistent with that. And so Peter's saying, now I want you to set your hope completely, set your hope fully on that. Don't let anything else deter it. That's the command. And I think it's so amazing that the first thing that comes to Peter's mind in response to this great salvation, and as he gets prepared to tell us what to do, what to command. He doesn't quite go to the holy thing yet. He just says, no, really, what I want you to do, first and foremost, is sink deep into this. I want this to captivate you. I want this to consume you. I want this to be your passion, to be conformed to the image of Christ, the great grace that is to come. Now, faith and hope are related. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, uh, the author of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things unseen. So we see that faith and hope are related. Faith is the assurance. You know that what we hope for, that is what God has promised, will come to pass. We know, we believe, that we're forgiven of our sins because that's the promise of God. So we hope in that. We trust that. We're convinced that's the case. We're convinced Jesus is going to return, and when he does, he'll bring this great grace to us that brings everything to completion. So we trust that. But there's a little difference between faith and hope that we must see, I think. For instance, if there's a prisoner on death row, he may be perfectly confident that he's going to be executed. That's his belief. That's his faith. He trusts given the judge's decree and just the way things are going, that he's going to be executed. But that is not his hope. Because hope speaks to desire. Hope speaks to not only what I think is going to happen, but I really, really want, what will really satisfy me. And so when the scripture says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that's sweet. That's saying, listen, all those things that your heart, your born-again heart, now desires... To live in a world that everything, where everything reflects the glory of Jesus. Where everything is just like he likes it. If that's your heart's desire, then hope in that. And faith is the assurance of that hoped for. You see? Because hope is like faith on tiptoes. It's, it's this great anticipation. It's saying, yes, I, I really want this to come to pass. That's our hope. Peter says, put your hope completely... Put your hope fully, 100% on that. Now you'll notice uh, in these verses, there sort of looks like there are three commands here. Prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully. Well, there's, there's really only one command there. It's really only the last one. You'll have to trust me. You'll have to teach you more grammar. All right? Uh, because the first two are participles. You know what those are. You don't. You forget ninth grade. Um, school's out. But, but, but they're verbal adjectives. That is, they modify what's to come. So these aren't three distinct commands. They're all related and they all push towards the last one. They all push towards the one that says, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the reason Peter commands that so forthrightly is because he knows that there's stuff that comes into our lives that diminishes that hope. And so he says, don't let that happen. Continue to set your hope on that grace. There's stuff that comes into our lives that diminishes that hope, for instance, our own sin. There are times when we sin and we feel as if we sin so grievously that our hope that this grace really will come to us is diminished. And that's dangerous. Sometimes the trials that affect our lives, these various grief-bringing trials, come into our lives in such a way as we think, if God really loved me, why am I going through this? And it diminishes this, this hope that we might have. And so Peter says, listen, I want you to set your hope fully on this and don't let anything deter you. And so we say, well, how can that be? How can that happen? How can, how can that take place? And he says, well, here's, here's how to make that certain. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Those two things modify 
setting our hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. He says, those are the things, those are your tickets. You need to prepare your mind for action. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, it says, gird up your minds for action, or gird your minds for action. If you have a King James, or if you have a marginal note, it may even go this far and say, gird up the loins of your mind for action. And we go, what's that mean? Well, in Peter's day, they would have understood that completely, because they wore funny clothes. Um, Funny to us, not funny to them, I don't suppose, but they wore these long, flowing sort of shirts that came down to their knees or robes. And the truth of the matter is you couldn't get away quick in one of those because you trip over it, too much stuff dangling. And so what Peter is saying is if you want a quick getaway, if you want to be quick, what you have to do with your robe is you have to take that and tuck it into your belt. And then you can move quickly. He says, I want you to do that with your mind. I want to make sure your minds are sharp. I want to make sure your minds are thinking rightly so much so that at any moment, at any temptation, at anything that comes there that would diminish your hope, you're able to get away from that quickly. I guess the current uh, uh, picture would be uh, when you're watching a movie and and, and there's a woman who's being chased by men and always amuses me because she's almost always in high heels. And so you want to say, excuse me, miss, if you took off those shoes, you could run a lot faster. So if Peter were writing, he'd say, women, take off your high heels of your mind. Okay? Uh, get going. Don't let anything hinder you. Don't let anything encumber you in the midst of this. Or, or, or you know, we see cars breaking down and, and men, macho men, getting out and rolling up their sleeves as if they know what to do. The, well, why do they roll up their sleeves? Because your sleeves get in the way. They could get dirty. And so you roll up. So Peter's saying, now, I want you to roll up the sleeves of your mind. Don't let anything interfere with this at all. The author of Hebrews would simply put it, set aside every encumbrance of your mind. Anything that would come into your mind that would cause you to hope less in God's grace and hope more in anything else. Just put that aside. Now, of course, the way that we do that, the way that we prepare our minds for this action is by knowing the Word of God. There's no other way. That's why the Apostle Paul would say that we have to be transformed in Romans chapter 12 by the renewing of our minds. We have to rethink life because we've been thinking wrongly about life. And we need to rethink life. And how do we do that? Where we learn the word of God. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 that we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive. If there's a thought that comes into your mind that diminishes at all the truth of Christ, any thought that comes into your mind that that causes you to hope less in the grace of God as the very desire of your life, then he says we're to expel that. And the only way that we'll know when those thoughts come in, we know when those counterfeit thoughts come in, is if we have the truth in our own minds. For instance... We might be tempted to think that that really our hope for a good life is in living a life filled with pleasure. Or maybe a life filled with wealth. Or maybe uh, on the basis of education, if only I had a better education, I'd be more refined, I'd know more, a better set of people that I'd be relating to. My life would be great. That's really my hope in, in, in having a great education. And then you read the book of Ecclesiastes in the scripture. And you find that he was... He was a great king, probably Solomon, with a fully funded research project as king. 
And so he explored every single one of them. He spent all the gold he possibly could spend on pleasure and he found that it didn't satisfy. Why? Because he said at the end he just needed one pleasure after another and after another and after another and none satisfied and finally he died anyway. Wasn't that? And it wasn't education because he said the more he learned, the more he realized that you can't set straight that which is crooked one generation to the other. Still the same difficulties no matter how smart we get. Plus, he said, the fool and the wise man end up with the same fate. They both die. And then money. He spent all the money he possibly could. Got as wealthy as he possibly could. Spent all the money he possibly could. And he said, that didn't work either, because you know what happens. It's kind of a routine to his argument. Both the poor man and the rich man die. The, day, the, the horrible thing is that the, when the rich man dies, he leaves his money to a fool who spends it in ways he would never have spent it himself. He says, it's not in that, it's only in God. There's only, and you read that and you go, yes, that's right. That's really right. We've seen it. Those things don't make for a great, hopeful person. What makes for real hope is hoping in the grace, hoping in the truth, hoping in that which only Christ can bring in the context of our own lives. There's sometimes we sin and we sin so grievously it seems as if we lose hope and, 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 and words come into our heads and thoughts into our minds that say, hey, you really can't be forgiven. How do you think you can belong to God if you sin like this? And what we have to do is make sure that we understand Psalm 32, for instance. It says, how blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Or 1 John 1, 9, that says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that says, Christ who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might be the very righteousness of God in him. We need to know those things because this will happen. These things will come into our minds. We think, I'm not worthy of, of the blessing of God. Surely he won't bring me any other good thing. And we need to know Romans 8.32 and the logic of it, which says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? We think, of course He's already given us Jesus. Why will he withhold small stuff? Surely he'll bring that to fruition for the glory of his own son. Surely I'm in this. You see, we need to know the word of God. And so Peter says, listen, you need to be tough-minded. And your minds need to be quick and they need to be sharp and they need to be prepared for action because action is coming. Because all of these thoughts will come in. I suppose the easiest target in the context of our own culture is in marriage and sexuality. And it's such an easy target is because we keep hitting it all the time. In the context of marriage, there are some, even Christians, who think their hope for a happy life is divorce. If only I could get rid of this one. If only I could, could leave this particular marriage, then that's my hope. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be fulfilled. But what they're not thinking is that when they leave this marriage and go to the next marriage, not only are they breaking God's covenant, but also they're taking themselves into this next marriage. And maybe that's the problem. I can't escape that. The only way to escape that is to have one's hope on the grace of transformation and becoming conformed to the image of Christ. That's what brings real satisfaction and to where you can become a servant and love this one even in a difficult situation. Or those who are unmarried and longing to be married and, 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 and experiencing the loneliness that can come through singleness. And the temptation comes to marry an unbeliever. Thinking, oh, this is my hope. If I can marry this unbeliever, even though the person's an unbeliever, still I'll be happy. But yet that goes against the truth of God. And God says, no, that's not it. Trust me. I'll satisfy you. I'll fulfill you. Don't. 
And our minds must be quick because when loneliness happens, it can be very tempting because it's very painful. Or of course in the context where a person may have affections for someone of the same gender. And our culture says, well, just satisfy those affections, satisfy those passions. And God says, no, that's not right. And when those thoughts come into a person's mind, when those temptations come into a person's heart, they have to be prepared for action, saying, no, God is the one who set up marriage. And he said, for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. That sets the standard. That's it. And thus there can be no other union, no other marriage, no other sexual intimacy apart from that. That's My hope is in God's grace coming to me to transform me so that I will align with this truth. But we must have this truth in us over and over and over again so that great temptation, of course, comes when a young couple is dating and they're unable to be married for a variety of reasons, financial or age or otherwise, and think, oh, if I will be satisfied if only we could be sexually intimate, even now. And of course, God says, no, 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 trust me. I can give you grace that will transform your heart so that you will not. And if your hope is in that, you see that's wrong. That's a counterfeit hope that brings no joy. <clears throat> context of materialism, another easy target in the context of our own, uh, of our own culture. And we must have in our minds the story that Jesus told when he began by saying, you remember Luke chapter 12, that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions because this whole culture in which we live continues to scream, yes, it does. Life consists in the size of your house, the value of your car, the, bigger, the, the size of your stock portfolio. Those are the things in which you should have your hope. And Jesus said, no, that's not it. That's not, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And then he tells the story. He said there was a guy who had all kinds of possessions that did him no good at all because because he died and wasn't rich towards God, did not know God. And so that's the point, isn't it? The point is have your hope on the grace that is to be revealed through Jesus Christ so that when he returns, so that when you, or you return to him, uh, whichever comes first, that you're ready, that you're there. That's what's important. And there's all kinds of stuff that will come to try to trip us up. All kinds of philosophies of life. It's amazing to me. Christianity Today has this issue. I haven't read it yet, but it was on the cover. cover has a review of the book called The Da Vinci Code. Some of you have read that. I've read that because some of you have read that, so I read that. Um, uh, and uh, it's an interesting uh, mystery novel, uh, cleaner than a lot of mystery novels that I've read in terms of the sexuality, utterly blasphemous in terms of its, its notions. The relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene and all of that. And it's amazing how that book has affected people. People have read that and said, oh, I wonder if this could be true. Not if you read the Bible, really. I mean, if that's in your mind, in your heart. And many of you have read that and gone away and go, ooh, this is wrong. Because you know that, that, that it's just not true. There is no relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene and no children and all of that. Absurd. These things come to us all the time in the context of our culture. And Peter's saying, you must be prepared, because if not, your hope will get sucked. Your hope will get sucked right away. He said, therefore, preparing your hearts, your minds, I'm sorry, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. You see, a prepared mind leads to a sober-mindedness. Now, we know what sobriety is. 
The opposite of sobriety, as in, in most common connections, is drunkenness. We know that drunkenness leads to a lapse of judgment, to where our values are distorted, for we have misunderstandings about that which is really true. It numbs us to the truth. And thus we see people making all kinds of mistakes who are uh, not sober. Uh, how many young girls have lost their virginity because of alcohol? How many are in the context of alcohol? How many uh, accidents have taken place where people have been hurt on the road because people are unable to make good decisions when they're drinking and driving and all of that? We know that. And so Peter's using that metaphorically to say, now what I want you to be is sober spiritually, sober-minded spiritually. And I just want you to be thinking clearly. And so you see, we need to ask the question, what is there spiritually that numbs us? What is there spiritually that numbs us to this great hope of the grace of God? What is it so distracts us that we lose sight of its value? What causes us to lose sight of the value of this great grace, our only hope, the free gift of God through Christ? What is it in our lives? I don't know what it is in your life. But it's whatever keeps you from having a quiet time when you would otherwise think you should. Because all of a sudden, the value of that quiet time just isn't very high. Something else is. Whatever it is that, that keeps you from worship, pure worship of God, because at that moment, there's something else on your mind that's more valuable than worship. Or acts of kindness to people. What keeps you from that? Could that be that which is an indicator that your hope really isn't in this great grace, this great salvation that shows this transformation that's taking place in the context of your own life and be completed when Jesus returns. What is it? What is it there? Could be career, could be family even. What is it? For some it might be TV. I have a friend who used to, when commercials would come on, mute it. But now he's at a place where he doesn't simply mute it, he just changes channels. Because it used to be the, the danger of commercials that caused us to covet. And he said it would cause me to covet. I would see these things and I would want them and I couldn't have them, so I would sin. And so I simply muted it so I wouldn't hear it. But then the second effect now, which may be the primary effect of, of commercials now, is lust. And so he has to, I don't know what you call the button that makes you move to another channel automatically. But anyway, I'm real good at this, as you can tell. He, he does that. That's a good idea. I have another friend that says he will not go on vacation with his family to the beach. He likes the beach. But at the beach, he finds himself distracted from this grace that is to be his in Christ Jesus because there are people there who are next to nothing, and that's a problem. And so he says, I, I just won't go to the beach on vacation. It's just not worth it. It distracts me. It takes away from my hope in the grace of God. I think that image or that thought may satisfy me more than my desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. So he just doesn't go to the beach. So what is it? Context with you. For some, it's pornography issues. For some, it may be something as good as the newspaper. If that's good. Um, what is it that distracts you from this great hope? Peter says to us this. He says, your response to this salvation is to be all-consuming. It's to captivate your very heart. That nothing should take its place. That your hope should be on grace. 
the very grace that comes to transform, the very grace that comes to eradicate sin, the very grace that comes to conform us to the image of Christ and enable us to glorify him, that grace, great grace that will come fully and completely when Jesus Christ returns. Focus on that. Don't let anything diminish from that. Therefore, prepare your minds and be sober-minded. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that nothing would diminish the wonderful truth of the hope that we have in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray for me and for us that there would be nothing that would diminish that. So I pray, Father, that you would enable us to be Bible bookworms, that we would be people who fill our minds filled with the truth so that at any moment we're able to take any thought, any philosophy, anything we view and stick it right into the truth and eradicate all that stuff that would diminish our hope and bring every thought obedient to the cap- to, to, to obedience, uh, captive to the obedience of Christ. Father, that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds as we know the truth, that we would be sober-minded people, that nothing would deter us, that nothing would distract us from the hope that's in Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the benediction, I want to uh, invite uh, four of our youth to come forward and enter into membership in our church. Uh, We've had this spring a number of our uh, youth group kids who have gone through what we call Grace 101 for Kids, and they've um, gone through what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of the church. We've given them the opportunity then to make a profession of faith. Uh, They've met with our elders, shared with them their uh, testimony of faith in Christ and their desire uh, to live as becomes a Christian. And uh, so I want to introduce them to you this morning. So as I announce your name, guys, if you'll just come up and stand right here and face uh, the congregation. Uh, Leslie Keelan, Scott Lang, Whitney Wiebe, and Chase Torgerson. You guys would come up. Now, I'm going to ask them some questions. And they'll answer, I do. Practicing for their marriage. Uh, quite similar, actually. Uh, I'll say, I do. First three questions enables them to share about their faith in Christ. The last two, uh, their commitment, as God would call them, to his church. Now, as they do that, I want you to smile at them. Because you see, in the lives, the places where they are and will be, in school, when they stand up for Christ, not everybody smiles. They're in an environment that can be tempting and hostile towards them. They have teachers that aren't necessarily fond of Christians. There are other students who, because of the lives that they would choose to live and have chosen to live, might be intimidated, might ridicule them. So they're in a place that can be very difficult. And they need to know that there's a whole group of people that not only loves them but stands with them. There's a whole group of people that when life gets tough for them, they know we're praying for them. 
They know that we care for them. They know they can come to us. They know that we will help them in whatever way we possibly can. And so as they say, I do to these questions, absorb their faces in yours uh, with great affection. Okay, guys, first question. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation, except in his sovereign mercy, do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Do you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he's offered in the gospel, do you? Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ, do you? And you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in the service of God and his ministry to others, do you? And you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church to the spiritual oversight of this church session. And you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church, do you? I'm going to ask them to stay right there. And I'm asking you guys to stand, congregation to stand. I'll give you the benediction. And we'll respond to it. Then after the benediction, rather than going out, come this way. And and this is scary to them and it's scary to you, but it's okay. Uh, So just come this way and greet them so they can have a bunch of faces that on one day in their life and hugs to that, that they know, oh yes, this person stands for Christ as well. The response to the benediction is Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. We say that all the time, but we mean it. When we say Jesus is Lord, we mean that our hope is in the grace that he brings. We have no hope outside of that at all. And when we say hallelujah, we say that's our hope, that's our desire. We hope fully in this grace. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.